Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Adam Ozemek. Adam is the chief economist at the Economic Innovation Group. Um, and he also hosts something called Econ Twitter Water Cooler. Um, and he's really popular and has a lot of cool ideas. So he was nice enough to come on the show and tell us what he thinks about the economy. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let, let's start with the first two things. So what's the Economic Innovation Group and what are you doing with Econ Twitter Water Cooler? Uh, yeah, great question. So the Economic Innovation Group is a D.C.-based think tank. And what we focus on is uh, business dynamism and spatial inequality. Uh, what we mean by dynamism is like, uh, you know, making the economy overall more dynamic, uh, more startups, more entrepreneurs, more job changing, and also making it a more inclusive economy. So it's sort of straddling between, you know, making the labor market and, uh, you know, startups work for everybody, I guess is the way to put it. So let me just stay on that for a second, which is so one thing we like to do on this podcast is give people a magic wand. And we talk about public policy here all, all the time. So obviously, you guys have, I assume, some key tenets of like, if we really want to pr promote innovation and make it a lot more widespread, we need A, B, and C, greater immigration, greater R&D, whatever it is. I'm giving you the magic wand. What are you doing? Yeah, it's immigration, no contest. Uh, more high-skilled immigration. Uh, immigrants are entrepreneurial. They bring uh, new workers. They bring population growth. And, um, you know, they bring inventiveness. So that's the number one thing. How do we get more high-skilled people here? Um, in particular, you know, one of the proposals we have is for something called Heartland Visas, which would mm -hmm. allow high-skilled immigrants to move to the U.S., uh, and live in uh, demographically struggling communities. So that's one of the important conclusions of our research is that you know, places that are losing population, uh, they really suffer from a variety of negative spillovers from that. It makes them a particularly useful place if we can get high-skilled immigrants to move there. So that's my magic wand policy is high-skilled okay. immigration overall would bring okay. a lot more to the U.S. And what would it, in order to do specifically Heartland visas, you definitely need an act of Congress, or could sort of the federal, the executive branch do it in some way by executive order? Heartland visas would require an act of Congress for sure. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that Heartland visas were on um, President Biden's uh, platform when he ran for president. So we know that um, there is interest there. Uh, Mayor Pete and uh, Mike Bloomberg also had it on their platforms too. Um, so there is, you know, support for this idea. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, Congress deciding it's time for high scale immigration reform. Yeah. I mean, for whatever it's worth, you know, uh, something that was on Biden's policy agenda as well, which was the repeal of Section 230, um, which is something that we've been really interested in. Last week, he finally did do something on it and called for it. So maybe Heartland Vases is next, um, hopefully. Yeah, that'd be um, great. Yeah. So, so the Econ Twitter water cooler, how'd you come up with the idea and like, how did you grow it into something that like people really like? So, um, you know, it's really the Twitter, the Twitter spaces is a really great feature. Um, I think it's a great way to communicate and to, uh, help generate the kind of spillovers that happen in the halls of academia and large corporations and Washington, DC, you know, economists talk about these spillovers from agglomeration. When you put all these people together in a labor market, there's productivity gains, innovation gains that are to be had simply by, you know, lots of similar businesses, lots of similar experts locating nearby. And if you think about Twitter in various communities on there, it's sort of a similar thing as real life agglomeration. It's just digital agglomeration. So how do we get more of those spillovers that we see in the real world that make up agglomeration? How do we make them 
digitally. And I see Twitter spaces as a great way to do that. So it's a way to talk to people about topics for, you know, sometimes it starts at the back and forth on Twitter. And it's just like, you know what, let's, this is really interesting. There's a lot to dig into here. Let's have a conversation. So my, my two co-hosts on it, Arpit Gupta, Matt Clancy, uh, two of my favorite economists, we have great chats with each other and other people. And and do you guys feel like you generally avoid the toxicity of Twitter or your view is like, fuck it, I don't care. Just come on, come on. Uh, I don't think we've ever had any sort of toxicity on the podcast at all. It's really, you know, we invite people on who are like really interested in learning from each other. And like, I, like we really want to dig into some detailed topic and viewpoint. There've been people on who, who disagree for sure. Um, it, you know, definitely have people on who right? disagree. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that disagreement is good, but it's really, you know, I think what's really crucial is when people come at the topic with an attitude of like, I'm not trying to win here. I'm trying to like, trying to get at, trying to get deeper into the issue, trying to really dig into the issue. That's, that's really the mindset we try to bring to it. Right. So when did you know you want to be an economist? When like everyone else wanted to be like the point guard for the Knicks in, in the fourth grade, you're like, nope, I want to I, I want to think about kind of spatial inequity or, or how did you get to this point? Uh, I, I took an economics class in high school and that was formative for me. Uh, but I always sort of wanted to be the two things that I wanted to be were uh, a scientist and a business person. I, I've always loved the world of business. I've always loved just thinking about and understanding the economy. And at the same time, uh, I wanted to be a guy who wore a white lab coat and did science. Um, and, you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that economics is, you know, sort of that. You're the, you know, the science of business, the science of how markets work and function. And uh, I also it's so, sort of at the time hoped that by learning how the economy works in the deepest level, it would also help me, uh, you know, become skilled at business as well. Um, so you wrote a report this spring called How Remote Work is Shifting Population Growth Across the U.S. And, you know, as, as I understand it, the key finding is that remote work is driving population growth in kind of new and different ways and driving it to lower cost, lower density places. So what do you find? And is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Um, what we found was that the population shifts really had the fingerprints of remote work all over them. So if you look at places where lots of jobs could be done remotely, those were places um, and those places had a high cost of living, they tended to see out-migration. So people were moving from there and where they were moving to was lower cost of living places, places that tended to have some some, some nicer amenities, but they were lower cost of living. And a lot of them are sort of in the vicinity of these more expensive places. So we haven't yet been able to really strictly test like uh, or measure like how are people moving because they are remote. But what we're seeing is like the fingerprints, right? Like this looks like it's remote work doing it. And so, you know, you see New York, San Francisco are seeing the biggest declines um, in, in you know population and other really big expensive cities. And then people are moving out to less expensive places. I think it's a really good thing. I think it's a good thing for cost of living. I think it's a good thing for spatial inequality. And I think it's a good thing for, you know, revitalizing a lot of communities. Now, are, are the companies themselves also moving operations for whoever's there or they're staying in San Francisco or New York, or whatever it is, but saying, hey, you know, work wherever you want? You know, interestingly, we, we can look at um, uh, BLS data on new business establishments, and we can see that there has been an increase in business establishments in the places that are seeing increases in population growth. 
Um, and this, on the other side of the coin, places that are losing population are seeing a decline in business establishment. So I do think that that's one of the things that's going to happen is that, you know, business follows people, especially high skilled people. And even if the direct effect is sort of like, I'm going to stay working for, you know, for example, IBM, but I'm going to leave New York City and I'm going to go move to, you know, uh, northern, northeastern Pennsylvania, um, I, I may keep that original job initially. But in the long run, I think moves like that are going to be good for entrepreneurship in those areas. I think some of those people will find they want to start businesses or maybe fund businesses. And at the very least, their spending in the economy will be good for businesses as well. I'm going to throw out a couple of different kind of variables. And I want you to tell me whether or not you think those are significant factors in people who are choosing to move from high density areas to low density areas. So first obvious one would be crime. Uh, it's a good question. I'd say, you know, there's certain plausibility to it, but uh, have not seen evidence of it yet. So I would not want to say anything too, with too much surety there. How about taxes? Uh, again, has not, have not seen the investigations of it, but uh, it strikes me as plausible. We do know from pre-existing literature that state tax rates do affect the migration of the most skilled people. Um, that includes like, you know, inventors and very high income people. Uh, we do see good evidence of state taxes having an effect there. So I would call that not just plausible, but some pre-pandemic evidence in favor. Yeah, for sure. So one thing that I've, so we are generally remote um, because, you know, our workers, our employees did a really good job during COVID, you know, productivity has been high. And so no real reason to require them to come to the office every day. But something that I've noticed, I'm curious if you saw in your research and what it means is the older people who actually run my venture fund, the consulting firm, the foundation, whatever it is, and even me, we're there in the office, right? Because like having somewhere to go every day and, you know, we're, we're doing kind of the traditional thing. And when I was 23, if I could have access to sort of the people in charge, especially if it wasn't that crowded because other people weren't coming in, I would have been there morning, noon and night. And what I've noticed about the younger people, some of them are doing that. But a lot of them genuinely seem to care about work-life balance, even if it means that they will not succeed as much in their career as they possibly could. So first, as an employer, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. I want people who are really crazy. And then I kind of thought about it a little more, and I'm like, you know what? This is pretty good, right? You have people who have a healthier view of life, and it's not purely just about you know money and consumerism and everything else. Um, do you see that in the research? So there is, a, there is somewhat of an age bias to preferences for remote work where you see like a peak in the like 30s and 40s which would kind of be consistent with what you're saying like younger people have a slight more interest in being in the office older people have a slight more interest in being in the office as well and that might be technology it might be that they're at the management level and people sort of at the parent age are the most uh eager to be home but I, what i'll say is we, we, well there are differences you do see that there are a significant number of people in every age group that want to work from home. So it's not to say there aren't sort of age effects, but you'd be surprised, you know, that it's not, it's not like everyone that's 25. Wants right, to it's be not in the just office millennials. That's right. Okay. So now I'm Eric Adams. I'm the mayor of New York city. And I call you and say, Adam, you wrote this report. It's actually, we see it happening. It's a huge problem for New York city because we're losing our main tax base. What do we do? What's your answer? Yeah, it's a good question. And also, just to finish following up the last one, I do I do think there is something to say for 
work-life balance there. I think the most important thing is we get, it's giving people the ch- more choice around this. So having people, you know, I think it's great when some people like choose to be, you know, I- intensely careerist and innovative and that we have some people like that in the economy who are like dedicated to producing the maximum amount of innovation and output. And then there's other people who are like dedicated to, you know, being a good parent, having lots of kids. And, um, you know, I think th- there's an important, importance of diversity there uh, i do think on on the whole there's probably uh room for a little bit less workism among the most highly educated and so on, on the net i think if if that choice allows people to be slightly less work centric um especially among the higher educated it's probably probably a good thing um okay. in terms of like what cities can do i think that this really returns us to a healthier state to have cities thinking like this a bad state is when cities are thinking, what do I do to lure in big employers, which is a decent description of the pre-pandemic status quo, right? Like the yep. cities don't care about people. They care about getting Amazon and Microsoft and all these big companies. How do I get them to move their offices here? And then the people will be stuck here and they don't have a choice. You know, <laughs> right. the, the, job, the jobs come, the people will come, and who cares about anything else? That's obviously an oversimplification, but like yeah. that's the cartoon character version. And now so, I think, yeah, quite a few yeah. I was just saying, I think people focusing on actually caring more about how do we lure in residents, how do we make residents happier. I think that's a positive development. Right. So there's the whole. You know, I, I worked in the Bloomberg administration, and I think Mike understood this really well. But you know, he was less. He didn't believe in in throwing tax credits and incentives to companies to come here. His view is. If I create a really good product in the city itself, if it's clean, if it's safe, if it's well run, if the schools are decent, if the parks are nice, um, that will get the creative class, that kind of Richard Florida type of people here. And that's why employers will come is because they want access to that talent. Um, So if, if it seemed like young creative people were flocking to certain cities because they wanted proximity to each other, um, do they no longer care about that if they're moving to low density areas? Well, I think some people will still move to New York for the proximity to each other. I don't foresee a future where New York hollows out. Um, speaking of Richard Florida, he, he's been saying from the beginning of the pandemic, he thinks this is going to lead to a younger New York City, that people who are coming there for the social mixing, for the for you know finding a spouse, um, for the dating life, they're going to be able to afford um, the big cities more as the prices go down when you know older people take remote jobs and leave. So I do think people will still come to cities for those amenities. I don't think this is the end of the city. I think cities have a a tremendous value as a place for, you know, consumption and a place for socializing. And, you know, some occupations will retain their stickiness to big cities. But I think that, you know, it's about different, different choices. And um, I think for a while now, it's been the case that if you really wanted to be at the top of a lot of professions, if you really wanted to maximize your opportunities, you had to live in one of these big cities. And so people were living there for the jobs, but weren't necessarily doing it for the city life, for the amenities. And now given the choice, you know, they're revealing that they they were there for the job and they'd rather live somewhere else in some other different um, you know type of situation. So on net, I think we're going to see uh, declines, but that doesn't mean New York City is going away. So when you talk about lower cost, lower density places, do you mean like exurbs or do you mean cities that have hollowed out a, a Cleveland, a Detroit, Rust Belt, whatever it is? Uh, I think it's both. 
I think that there will be um, le- like le- less expensive cities that benefit. Um, and then I think that you will also see uh, exurban places and even rural places and then some small towns also benefit as well. So, uh, you know, I, I, what I try to really emphasize a lot is like the importance of diversity and choice and not one size fits all and that we're expanding the choice set for people to live different kinds of lives and reducing the need for everyone to sort of cram into a handful of big cities. So I, I think that we'll see a, a bunch of different types of places succeed on the basis of greater remote work. So let's say I'm the mayor of St. Louis now, and I come to you and say, okay, you know, based on what you're writing and, and studying, people should be wanting to come to a place like St. Louis because we are lower cost and lower density. What do I need to do to attract them? Uh, you know, think about quality of life. Think about quality of life is a really important thing. And it's like, isn't it crazy that like to be in a, where we're like, that's, you have to tell like governments that like focus again on quality of life. Think about quality of life. It's like, well, that's what you should have been. That's what you would think. That's like the start of it. But, you know, St. Louis is an interesting example because it kind of is in the middle. Uh, it's not, it's not in like the, uh, there's no adjacency to more expensive places, right? Like it's, it's inexpensive all around there. Right. right, right. Um, so th- that, that, that might be, I wouldn't put a lot of money on St. Louis cause they, they neither had the amenities of, other places nor do they have like you know here in pennsylvania which is where i am a lot of places around here are benefiting from being like two or three hours drive from new york and so like you can get like three hours away from manhattan into a nice rural or a small town or suburban area versus like st louis is like so cheap everywhere around there i'm not sure that there'll be as much it's not really drivable on a regular basis to chicago No offense to the people of St. Louis, and I hope that they do figure out a way to make uh, remote work work for them. And to be fair, I've never been there. Maybe they have tremendous amenities. They do. I have been there. Um, I wouldn't say they have tremendous amenities, but they have a couple of cool things. Bush Stadium, if you're a baseball fan, is a really great ballpark. They make this thing called toasted ravioli that's actually pretty disgusting yet delicious. So if if you find yourself in St. Louis, that would be that would be two things to do. So I want to dig into a little more about sort of the underlying purpose of cities and city government? Because like you said, you know, I'm a Bloomberg person. And so I subscribe to the theory that it's about quality of life. It's about creating a product that people want. And that's, and those people create ideas, jobs, opportunities, you know, great things. But like when Mike was succeeded by Bill de Blasio, um, de Blasio said very explicitly, the job of the mayor and the job of the city is to reduce income inequality. Um, and he governed that way. I don't know that he made a lot of progress on income inequality, but quality of life itself got a lot worse. Um, it, what do you make of that view of people you generally can kind of from the far left who, who just have a, a different concept of how city government should work? Well, I think we should think of city governments as being fairly constrained by a lot of forces outside their control. And um, it's not like being the U.S. government where like, you know, if the U.S. government does something and you don't like it, uh, you don't really have a, a lot of room to vote with your feet, right? Like, sure, you can go to Canada or Mexico or Europe, but um, especially if we're talking about, you know, raising tax rates, it's going to be hard to find a much better deal. So the U.S. government has a lot more discretion to do things, uh, especially like in the direction of reducing inequality than right. a city government does where, you know, people can vote with their feet really, really easy. Yeah. And it, it like you have to, it doesn't mean you can't have progressive taxation, 
but you better be darn sure that that progressive taxation um, is met with like really great amenities and quality of life that's generated by your city so that people don't respond by leaving. Because, you know, in economics, we laugh at the idea of the Laffer curve, where like if you raise taxes, um, revenues might go down. Um, which is an idea promoted in the eighties during the Reagan administration, but yeah. like the, it is a lot more re, like easy for a uh, city to be on the wrong side of the Laffer curve. And it's because people can vote with their feet. Yeah. And what's interesting is you don't see what you just described is how people kind of should be right. Which is if you say, I want, I care about income inequality. Uh, therefore I am going to embrace more progressive taxation, but I'm going to use the money to keep our kind of high-paying, high-performing people in our city by making sure that it is clean and safe and well-run and everything else. It tends to be that the people who are all for sort of higher taxation also seem to sort of ignore quality of life and think that it's not really that important or they're even nostalgic for the grid of the 1970s or something like that. Are there any mayors that you're aware of that sort of understand that and kind of have a, I I want to lower inequality and part of the way that I do that is through quality of life? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I can't say that I uh, know enough mayors well enough to pull from my deep well of mayor knowledge and say that anyone comes to mind, but it's a good question. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you were mentioning sort of the federal versus city, that's what Mike used to say when he, they would call on him to say, there should be higher taxes. And he say, look, I agree. Washington's got to do it because people are not going to leave the US to move to, like you said, Europe or Australia, wherever it is. But if I raise taxes, people are going to move to Florida Right, people are going to move to Texas, and then we're going to lose our tax base, and that's what we're relying on. Something like fifty-one thousand taxpayers in New York pay more than half the, the New York City pay half the taxes. So it's like you really can't afford to to lose those people. Let's pivot then a little bit to, to the federal government. Um, the Fed is struggling, obviously, to get inflation under control. They keep talking about more and more rates. They keep hiking rates. Um, do you think they can do it? And is it possible that the correlation between inflation and interest rates is weaker than it used to be? Uh, I think that they can raise rates. I think that they can get inflation under control. I'm I'm much less worried that they that they won't be able to do that than that they will go too far in doing it. Uh, I think, you know, everyone has plenty of uh, living memory of inflation being low for a very long time. I think it, the Fed is not going to convince everyone in you know 24 months time that they've lost control of inflation permanently and that's you know you really need that kind of thing to happen um in order for the fed to lose control and you know that's what gradually happened in the 60s and 70s and i think it's important to go back and look at the inflation data from back then it didn't manifest overnight like it took a long time the slowly eroding trust in the fed the slowly slowly eroding credibility of the fed and like you know the the slowly uh, the, the Fed, who wasn't fighting to keep inflation down, Powell seems very serious about getting inflation down now. So, I think that he can. My concern is that on the back of two years of underestimating inflation, um, the Fed is going to over-index to make sure yeah. that they retain their credibility by raising rates too fast. Yeah. And then what about? And this supposition may be totally wrong, but take cars as an example. But there was because of the pandemic, because of the supply chain. Um, there was a huge shortage in a lot of consumer goods that there was great demand for. Typically, when there is greater demand, manufacturing or production of whatever it is ramps up to meet that demand. If now all of a sudden there's a far greater supply of cars on a lot or whatever it is, and yet at the same time, demand is decreasing because of inflation and people have less money to spend, 
Um, does that kind of in and of itself kind of help solve the problem? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the big mystery is like why it hasn't happened more yet. But I do think that that that's coming. Like, you know, part of part of the inflation problem was too much demand. Uh, it was too much stimulus too fast. Uh, households with a ton of pent up savings. Um, so that's like part of it. But part of it was reduced supply and supply is coming back online at the same time that demand is reducing. An important place to see this is if you look at the labor market where we've added like millions of jobs in the last like, you know, nine months, uh, like the, the job growth rate has been really strong. Those workers are going to produce output and that output they produce is an increase in supply and that increase in supply is going to reduce inflation. It's just taking things a little bit longer than we expected for that, you know, that those workers to turn into output, to turn into deflationary pressures. I think part of it is that businesses are struggling with the, the chaos of onboarding so many workers so fast and the continued churn in the labor market. It's really making them struggle to keep their productivity high and keep and, their and output do, up. But I think, yeah, we'll ease into that. Do you worry though, so you're a proponent of remote work. I have found that one of the downsides of remote work is it's much harder to train people both in their job and in your corporate culture. Um, and so in terms of business being able to ramp up quickly enough that their employees are productive, is remote work a hindrance to that or not? I think that the tightest parts of the labor market and the places where employers are struggling the most to find workers and where job openings are highest and where employment ha rates haven't even quite bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. So there's probably still reductions in labor supply. Those places are concentrated in lower skilled work. And that's not where you find remote work. Remote work, it tends to be people with college degrees, advanced degrees yeah. and higher. So I don't, I don't think that we're dealing with the kind of like crazy churn as much in the places where remote work is. It's like a different part of the labor market. I um, want to pivot to a topic that is, I think, even more fun, um, but a, a little less erudite, which is you either do or used to own a bowling alley. Is that true? I do. I do own a bowling alley, yes. All right. So walk me through this. So for, first of all, where is the bowling alley and what is it called? It's called Decades and it's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. Are you, did you grow up as like a avid bowler and that's why you wanted to do it? Nope. I am not an avid bowler. Um, it, I, it's a, so it's a bowling alley, it's an arcade, it's a restaurant and it's a bar. So okay. it's a lot of things at once. And it's, uh, it's a nice, like high end place. It's a place where you, where you'd go to get a, a Manhattan and you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, paying more than $10 for it. But you're around right. here in Pennsylvania. That's a that's a that's a high price Manhattan. I know that's right. not a high price Manhattan. In yeah, right. So, so like a, a Brooklyn Bowl in New York would be a corollary to what you're doing. Yeah, something like yep, yeah, yep, yeah, something but, like but, that. But we've we've got chandeliers. You know, we've got leather furniture. So it's a nice place, uh, nice upscale place. But I love arcade games um, for sure. I've always loved arcade games. Never been never been a really big bowler. It was really about finding something that uh, was a. a a fit for what was needed in downtown Lancaster. And was you, did you start off the thought process by saying, I want to help revitalize downtown, downtown Lancaster. What can I build that would appeal to consumers? Or were you like, I love arcades and I think bowling, you know, is a good business too. Let's build something around that. It, I, it's both. And I think it has to be, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be, but I think a lot of good business comes from, being inside the customer's head by being the customer and 
um there i knew from living downtown there's like there's, there's great restaurants there's like good bar scene whatever you place the list of music but there wasn't much to do there wasn't much to like there's no things to do other than that so i was thinking what would i like to do what would my friends like to do what what do i feel is missing so it's the answer is both i'm thinking about customers but i am one of the customers i'm i'm, I'm not an, uh, an avid bowler but i do like to bowl at decades and we get together with friends and, and stuff so it is fun it's just i'm not not super serious about it same thing with these games and ski balls something i like to do so it's right. you know putting your putting yourself in the head of the customer by being the customer and how's the business doing? Is, is it sustainable? Yeah, it's doing great. We're, having a, we're doing good. This is our we we opened in uh, March of 2019, so we uh, our one year anniversary was the uh, the same month the pandemic hit. It was a rough patch, but uh, we made it through, and now the business is doing great. So, of the four elements uh, the bar, the restaurant, the arcade, and the bowling what brings in the most people? And from a margin standpoint, ranking them kind of what's the most profitable least profitable so the the bowling and the arcades are the most profitable for sure on, on the margin because their their operating costs are super super low so like when you look at like the restaurant the operating cost is going to be like something like 25 to 30 percent is normal for a restaurant so like your gross margin is like you know 75 percent, something like that 70 percent the the bowling has like a, a operating margin of like a hundred percent. Like the the marginal costs are super super low. You buy these, you, same thing for arcades. You buy these really big pieces of equipment, and then the cost to run them are super low. It's one of the nice things about that. The synergy here is that like we can afford to lower prices on them on nights when we're slower or nights when we want to fill up, or if we have parties or giveaways or corporate events. Like if we hand out like. Two hundred dollars in tokens that doesn't cost us anything. Uh, there's no marginal cost to that giveaway. Right. right. The games, cost but the the, game. the volume revenue volume comes more from the higher. bar and the restaurant. Highest margins come from the bowling and the arcade. And but the, what's the margin on alcohol? So it's supposed to be really high, no? Uh, yeah, that's that's wrapped into the the twenty five to thirty percent uh, cost of goods sold estimate for our overall like kind of food and beverage program the alcohol margin will be somewhat uh, above that the uh food and beverage margin will be below and the blended is somewhere in that area got it so the last question you have formal training as an economist you have informal training as a small business owner Um, what have you learned as a small business owner that they didn't teach you uh when you were studying economics yeah it's a great question um you know there's a lot that i that I bring to each thing from sort of the other thing. One of the things that really stood out to me as going through the entrepreneurial process is like just the, the, the importance of relationships and networks and, um, you know, uh, the, on the financing side, the, the, the need for like lots of banks in the area. So this is like a subtler thing, but like we, we were able to find like, banks who are really interested in working with us eventually but if you because like we heard like oh here's a bank that's trying to expand their lending portfolio right now because they're new in the area and they're trying to grow and i thought that was interesting because you might think like the investability of a business is purely a matter of like okay here's the projected p l um that's it here's here's the business does it make sense like they'll pull the credit rating stuff like that um, but like the the fact that there were aggressive banks in the market who wanted to expand their lending 
becomes an input into how easy it is to become an entrepreneur. That to me was very fascinating. It's an area of research that I want to explore more in thinking about why does entrepreneurship decline in places that are struggling? And I think this is one of the reasons is because like population falls, bank deposits fall, um, concentration goes up in the banking sector because there, you know, you don't have growth, you don't have new customers in the margin. This benefits the incumbents relatively, and then it's harder to get loans, small business loans. So yeah, that's yeah, capital goes down. Yeah, um, yeah. I've now sitting here thinking of a million questions of how how blockchain and the internet could change that, but uh, I guess that's for the next uh, the next episode. So, all right, Adam Osmer, how do people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at um, at modeled behavior. That's probably the best place to get me. Cool. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us. It was a fascinating interview and love to have you back on. Yeah, anytime.